Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Gerard Arrault, is the former French ambassador to the United States and the United Nations. I reached out to him for an interview about the U.S. election because I wanted to learn how a veteran senior diplomat from Europe is interpreting the U.S. election results. Also, Ambassador Arrault has a reputation for being very blunt and direct. And after you listen to this conversation, I think you'll understand why. We recorded this conversation on the Friday following the Tuesday of Election Day, when the result was all but certain. Two things really stand out for me from this conversation. Uh, First, Ambassador Arrow, and as he explains, the French by extension, have a very long view about transatlantic relations. Uh, My first question to him was about how he interprets the Trump years, and he answered by starting with George Washington. Uh, Second, I also wanted to learn from him how transatlantic relations might be repaired in the Biden administration, and he twice came back to this idea of digital cooperation to prevent the Chinese company Huawei from building 5G infrastructure in allied nations. There is much, much more in this conversation. We cover a lot of ground from the Iran nuclear deal to the Paris Climate Accords to the personal diplomatic style of Joe Biden and why Ambassador Arrault craves a return to normalcy in U.S. diplomacy. I think we're about to enter a very interesting period of U.S. foreign policy, and I intend to focus many episodes in the coming months on various aspects of U.S. foreign policy, from the U.S.-China relations to U.S. relations in the Middle East to U.S. policy towards multilateralism, all that I seek to explore in depth with an expert on these subject areas. If there's anything in particular you are interested in learning in these coming weeks and months, please do send me an email. You can reach out to me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I'd love to hear if you have suggestions of topics you'd like me to cover or people you'd like me to interview, uh, just send them my way. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. I always love hearing from you. Thank you in advance for sending me your thoughts. And now here is my conversation with Ambassador Gerard Arrault. Well, I think, first, I have always been convinced that uh, there are, in uh, American foreign policy, uh, in a sense, they, there are two trends, uh, and and one that we have forgotten, uh, but which has dominated the U.S. foreign policy uh, since George Washington uh, till uh, 1945, which means uh, the the will of uh, not interfering, not entangling the U.S. in the world affairs. Uh, what you know, it's basically uh, try, the Americans have carefully avoided any international involvement, more or less till the First World War. The First World War, they went there 
only because they were obliged by uh, actually the, the German actions, uh, but they immediately left. Quick, they quickly left uh, Europe, and they didn't ratify the Treaty of Versailles uh, in 1919. And in a sense, if they were, they went eventually. They went to the world scene. It was because they were obliged to do it. Obliged to do it. You know, they didn't declare war to Japan. They didn't declare war to Germany. It's Japan and Germany uh, which did it. Uh, and uh, in 1945, uh, they were they felt obliged to stay uh, because France and and the UK were exhausted, devastated, unable in a sense to defend Europe. And there was, of course, a global threat, or what was perceived as a global threat, which was Soviet Union and communism. But um, after the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union and the, the, the vanish, really, and the, when the, the threat of communism has vanished in 1991, I think the question could have been raised of why, why the U.S. Uh, should uh, remain so much committed, engaged, into the world, the world affairs. And so when Trump, in a, in a sense, the question was raised by President Obama. You know, people forget that President Obama, you know, really didn't intervene in Ukraine, uh, uh, really intervened in Syria, but in the minimum that he could do under the maximum pressure of the allies, Arabs and, and Europeans. Until the last moment, didn't want to intervene in in Libya. Mm-hmm. He withdrew uh, from from Iraq uh, and 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 was thinking of withdrawing from Afghanistan. You know, so for me, between Trump and and Obama, how, however shocking it may sound, there is also some form of continuity uh, from the left and from the right. Uh, the idea of limiting, reducing. Uh, the American commitments uh, in, in the world, and which can be understandable after uh, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars mm-hmm. and what you can consider as, as their failure. So, so for me, again, uh, when, when looking at, at Trump, of course, it was done in a sort of a primitive, erratic, uh, unpredictable way. But at the same time, and I think that's part of the talent of the guy, he was also responding, I guess, to something uh, in the country, in the United States, which is a fatigue of the Americans for uh, international uh, international commitments. And if Biden Biden elect, of course, Biden comes from another world because of his personal experience. But listening to the Democratic left, which will be influential in a new administration, I don't predict that. Uh, the, um, the United States will go in a different way. Of course, it will be much more civilized. There will be diplomatic dialogue, uh, multilateral, uh, multilateral negotiations, but we are not going back to the, Amer- to the U.S. policemen of the world. The, the sort of neoconservative uh, and liberal foreign policies of, say, the Clinton and Bush era exactly. seem to have now been fully eschewed. However, you know, beyond like military interventionism, of course, you know, there are other aspects of U.S. foreign policy, like, you know, democracy promotion or human rights or, you know, things that have traditionally and historically been associated with the United States that uh 
Trump seemed to have abandoned. And presumably, uh, you know, one could expect Biden to pick up where where he left off. And also, you know, speaking to you as a former French diplomat, one can expect Biden not to, you know, trash the Europeans uh, as much as as Trump has. Of course, you know, Willie, uh, in, in more, I think in more simple words, I, words, I should say that we will have, again, an American diplomacy. Uh, because what is striking is basically that for the last four years, we have not had a real uh, real diplomacy. Because as you know, uh, foreign policy, you have the foreign policy, which means the president, you know, uttering uh, decisions or declarations. And after that, you have a diplomatic machinery, which is implementing this policy. And what is what has been striking for the last four years is basically that the, the diplomatic American diplomatic machinery has been more or less has stopped uh, or to work. Uh, really, so we well, will. Can, be, can you give me an example of that? But you know, try to, to try to define. Give me the foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy in Africa, mm-hmm. which we you know really, uh, for instance, in Turkey versus Turkey. Uh, what is the foreign policy of, uh, of, 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 of the, of the U.S. versus Turkey? Versus, yeah. there, there was a long time where I couldn't figure out which side of the Libyan civil war the United States was supporting. <laughs> so exactly. So, uh, you know, so we, we are going to go back to normalcy. Normalcy doesn't mean that we are going to agree on everything, but at least we are going to negotiate. Uh, we are going to, you know, good example, China. It's obvious that Europeans are sharing uh, American concerns, some American concerns on China. Actually, when President Macron was in in Washington in uh, April 2018, he told he told Trump, he, he told him, he said, you know, we agree with you. We have a problem, uh, especially on uh, you know intellectual property, market access, uh, public procurements. Let's work together. And the answer of Trump was no way, because the European Union is worse than China. And after I settle my scores with China, it will be the turn of the European Union. So uh, obviously, we are not going to be uh, to, to be on, the, on this line uh, with uh, with President Biden. But at the same time, it could be complicated because I think that when the Biden administration is going to come to the Europeans and say we should work together versus China. For Europeans, it will be, it may be embarrassing because, or even awkward because on some issues, we agree with the Americans, of course. You know, really, uh, on all the issues I have, I have quoted, uh, the, 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 the World Trade Organization, the reform of the World Trade Organization, for instance, or the technology Huawei and so on and so on. You know, Huawei could be a good example. We could have a transatlantic cooperation, you know, with on the European side, Nokia and Ericsson and having a sort of an, 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 a transatlantic agreement. But there are also other issues where actually we may not agree or we may not really be ready uh, to follow the Americans. You know, the geography being what it is, uh, for us, China is not really a military a military threat. Mm-hmm. So that would be the diff- other difference, of course, joining the Paris Agreement on the climate change. It has been uh, announced yesterday, I think, or two days ago, by President by by by, by Joe Biden, which will be make a big difference. Jo- joining the Iran deal, and that will be a complicated uh, uh, move, but a positive one 
complicated because for two reasons. First, because the Iranians have, in retaliation, have left the agreement. So you have to, to bring back the both sides into the, the agreement. Uh, dif- difficult also because, uh, I think, and Europeans agree with the Americans, uh, we should handle we, ha- we had to handle the nuclear issue in isolation because it's so technical that you, you can't really make a sort of global, uh, but global deal. But you have also to, 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 to handle the other issues of concern, uh, like the, the ballistic, uh, activities, regional activities, terrorist activities of, of Iran. So that will be, and that, on that, the Europeans and the Americans, uh, can work, uh, can work together. And that will be, uh, that will be quite, uh, quite positive. But, but I mean, let me just sort of push back on, on you on, on that. So, you know, you had, you're referring to the JCPOA, negotiated and, and signed in 2015, uh, only to be, you know, ripped apart by the next US administration. I mean, if you're a, a French diplomat or a European diplomat and you've worked hard with the United States on a multilateral agreement like this, I mean, how much confidence can you have that the agreement, whatever you make, will remain in force when the next administration takes over? I mean, hasn't or has the Trump administration, the Trump presidency served as a warning to European allies that the U.S. is just not a reliable diplomatic partner? You know, we, we don't need warning about the inconsistencies of American foreign policy. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Speaking as someone who has served, uh, as a diplomat during the W. Bush and the and Obama uh, presidencies. But after yeah. these cheap shots, you know, cheap shots are, are the best ones. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> I, sense, I've seen you at the UN. I've seen you at the Security Council. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but, uh, yeah. uh we don't have the choice, to be frank. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the Americans have launched a war uh, because the, the economic uh, the economic uh, sanctions, the incredible economic sanctions, without any precedent imposed on Iran by the Americans, it's really a war, actually, without sh- shooting, w- without shooting. But that's that's a war, mm-hmm. and so and, and you're, you're referring also to the um, the sanctions on Iran, but also secondary sanctions. Yes, uh, the secondary that, sanctions that impact. Is- you know, French countries like Total and, and other things. Uh, no, no, really, uh, it's, uh, that, that's, yeah. you know, it's something that uh, you are talking about inconsistency. When the GCPOA was signed, actually, the Obama administration was pushing the European uh, co- companies to go to Iran because the American companies were still prevented by U.S. sanctions. So they pushed the, the European companies to go to Iran to show to Iran that actually there was a real quid pro quo, that they accepted the control of their nuclear uh, program. In exchange, there was, uh, there was a real economic relationship uh, with uh, the Western world. So try to imagine the Obama administration saying to Airbus, but also not only to Total, to Peugeot, to a lot of European companies, go to Iran, go to Iran, go to Iran. They go to Iran, and six months later, they are sanctioned by the Trump administration because they went to Iran. So that's <laughs> that was a, a, a low moment in the bilateral relationship. But well, the same well, so, time, Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, that... Oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, but at the same time, right now, whatever you're perfectly right, in four years, uh, we could have a, a, a mini Trump. We could have cotton. You know, really, uh, we we still worse. Uh, but for the moment, for the moment, the reality is that the Iranians are, since they have felt freed from the 
from the obligations of the GCPOA by the American move, they are accelerating their, their nuclear program. So our only, the only policy, you know, it's very clear. The alternative we are facing, we, we don't want to be facing the alternative of bombing Iran or Iranian bomb. Mm-hmm. You know, so the only yeah. way that we find is to negotiate with the, with the Iranians. And negotiating with the Iranians means bringing the Americans to the, to the, to the negotiation. So, of course, there is this, this risk. But I think that considering the, ten, the growing tensions in the Middle East, we are ready to run this risk. And, and, and frankly, I don't see any alternative. Mm-hmm. So, so just in case people missed it, uh, you uh, referred to Tom Cotton, the senator from uh, Arkansas, who's kind of an arch conservative, as a mini Trump and you know a potential nominee for the Republican presidency in twenty twenty four. Just in case people missed it, um, so you know our conversation and let, 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 let me start again. So. You know, around the time of the impeachment uh, of of President Trump, I interviewed someone I, I presume you know, Klaus Scheria, the the former German ambassador to the United States, and he shared with me an anecdote and said something with me that 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 struck me to this day. So he was a, a young diplomat during the Watergate era, and uh, what he told me is that you know. What emerged from his perception of the United States from the Watergate era was a profound respect for the ability of the United States to self-correct. And I'm curious to learn from you if you think that this election is a self-correction or is enough of a self-correction that might restore America's reputation in Europe. You know... The, the 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 relationship between Europeans and the um, and the United States is so intense and in a sense so emotional in, in particular in Germany you know in Germany it's it's very stri- it's a bit striking the way the, the Europeans reacted to the elections of the election of Donald Trump and uh, the Germans were the most I guess emotionally struck by what by what <laughs> was happening. In a sense, you know, the Germans have, a, and I think, a, an understandable um, gratitude to the U.S. to have rebuilt uh, Germany on its de- on democratic basis after 1945, not to have nurtured any revenge uh, at the expense of of of, of Germany. In a sense, the Federal Republic of Germany is more or less as a godfather, and the godfather is the United States. So there is a, a really an emotional commitment. The French and the British, I guess, less emotional, maybe more cynical, you know, really looked at it. And, you know, we, to be frank, we, we have, countries have a long memory, and we... We, we have already. You started had. this conversation by citing George Washington's. So. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. for, the French, for the French, you know, the, the trauma is the, the Treaty of Versailles, which was not ratified by the Americans. And the fact that in 1939, you know, in, 19, in the 14th of June, 1940, the, the, actually, it's the day the German uh, forces entered Paris. The French prime minister sent a letter to Roosevelt and saying, please help us. The democracies are are, are 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 defeated and so on and so on, and there was no answer coming from from Washington, and uh, really so so again we have we have some philosophy. Each country is defending its own interest. At the same time, uh, there are so many emotional, cultural, uh, human, 
and economic relationship with the U.S. that the U.S. is obviously not a country like any other. But we, the French and the British, we consider that the U.S. is defending its national interest. And it may happen that the American national interest actually don't overlap with the European national interest or with the French national interest. That's, that's the world. You know, it's really, it's, uh, there is nothing shocking. Uh, really in, uh, shocking. Uh, we may be in competition with the U.S. in disagreement on some issues. We have been, you know, in 2003, uh, when the U.S. launched the illegal uh, invasion of Iraq and the disastrous uh, invasion of Iraq, France opposed it. So it's it's normal, you know, it's really... But again, uh, having said that, we don't consider the U.S. like any country. There is uh, behind it, uh, you know, two or more, more than two centuries of, of friendship. I, I, I love to, to, re, to, re, to remind people that among the G7 countries, France is the only one never to have been at, at war with the U.S. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm glad you brought up the the 2003 uh, Iraq War, which was a a particularly low point between U.S. and European relations, particularly, you know, frankly, between the U.S. and, and and France. I mean, you know, if people, some of my listeners might be too young at the time, but you know, they even changed the menu at the cafeteria in the House of Congress to eliminate French fries and call them Freedom Fries. It was it was ridiculous, uh, but you know, it, France, you know, ended up. Being on the right side of history there, you know, and then you had Obama, who was able, I think, to restore America's reputation uh, in Europe. And then you have Trump, who one has, well, who's once again seemed to have, have trashed it. I mean, are there concrete things that Biden can do to strengthen uh, America's relationship with Europe going forward? Oh, yes, of course. You know, it's, it's very, in a sense, it's very simple. We are only asking for normalcy. As I have said, we are asking to have a civilized conversation with our American friends. And, uh, that's the first point. The second one is, of course, uh, the feeling that, again, as I have, I, have, I was referring to, we have had and we will have disagreements, but basically we are belonging to the same civilization. We are defending the same vision of the world, you know, of democracy, really free trade, uh, market economy. And uh, in a sense, also, we are facing right now a challenge to this vision. If we don't work together, Europeans and Americans, basically the Chinese authoritarian model, because there is a Chinese authoritarian model, actually uh, will, uh, uh, really, will win. And, uh, you know, it's making, it's making inroads in the third world, in the third world. And, uh, and also in, in technology also. Huawei is an, ex an extremely good example of what could happen if we don't work together, Europeans and Americans, and if we don't have a common policy, uh, if we don't have a common policy. So the first, the first, uh, you know, first, I think the Americans have nothing to do. Uh, the only, the, Election of Biden in itself is an incredible positive signal sent to the Europeans. Again, we are going back to normalcy. And, but after that, I suppose that we have to define a new transatlantic agenda. I think, you know, again, basically, uh, when you talk about the transatlantic agenda, you're talking about NATO. You know, Russia is a pain, uh, but Russia is not a unifying threat. You know, I, I do understand the, the fears and the historical 
really rooted fears of Poland, of the Baltic states. But let's be frank, the, the Russia, you know, the, the GDP of Russia is the GDP of Spain. And uh, Russia is not going to overwhelm uh, Europe. Russia is going to be a pain. So NATO is important, but it's not critical in the transatlantic relationship. So we have to reinvent our transatlantic relationship. And I think we are, all our societies, we are going through a technological transition, which is of major interest. And I think we have to organize to have a, a Western management of this transatlantic, of this sorry, uh, technological transition. You know, the governance of the internet, for instance, uh, the cryptocurrencies, uh, and there are also other issues, uh, the environment. You know, fighting climate change, when you look, you ask to the business community, what is the best way? And a lot of people answer carbon pricing. But frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have carbon pricing different in America and in Europe. Mm. So, so why not to work on that? The, the high-tech uh, companies, uh, you know, the high-tech companies are really a, an incredible opportunity, but also a challenge, you know, because, for instance, for the taxation, taxation is based on uh, brick and mortar. With Google, there is no brick and mortar. So the consequence is that Google doesn't pay uh, taxes, uh, income taxes, uh, you know, uh, to in Europe. So how to work together if we don't want to have a war between the U.S. and defending its companies and the Europeans saying, oh, by the way, pay your, your taxes. So we have a lot, a lot, and uh, the, the, there is a long list behind it, uh, really the, uh, the artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is raising a lot of ethical questions. You know, the, the killing robots. The killer uh, robots, yeah. And, and other issues. And that we have to solve to face these issues together. We are we really we belong again to the same civilization. The same civilization. Can I ask? Lastly, you know, Joe Biden has been around for a very long time. You have been a senior uh, French diplomat in the U.S. Uh, the the French ambassador to the U.S. while Biden was vice president. You know, presumably, you know, you've had personal interaction with him, and you've seen his diplomacy at work. Is there any your know, anecdotes or stories you could share uh, about Biden that um, is revelatory or suggests you know something about his diplomatic style? No, every time I was meeting him, you know, he was remind he was reminding me that his second first name was Robinet. <laughs> uh, and Robinet, you know, it's for a French, it's very strange because it's uh, it looks like tap in a feminine way. So it's really because French tap is Robinet. So Robinet, why? like a water tap. Oh yeah, water tap. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, in Robinet. a feminine, you know, feminine yeah. water tap. Well, <laughs> what did I bet Robinet? To be frank, Robinet in French sounds a bit ridiculous, but uh, <laughs> apparently it comes from, uh, I guess, a grandmother from Quebec or something mm. like this. So every time, no, uh, you know, you uh, Joe Biden is coming from. Uh, I should say uh, he was chairman of the House. The the, the Foreign Affairs Committee of the of the, the Senate uh, is a sort of traditionalist uh, Atlanticist. He, is a, he, he believes in the Atlantic uh, Alliance. Uh, you may also have think that he's a bit the man of the past also, at a time where you especially you were referring to one side, the neoconservatism, the other side, the liberal interventionism. Is I guess, is more on the later, uh, really. But... Um, 
the Americans have changed, and especially you know it, especially the the, the democratic left. Uh, so he knows the world. He knows how important it is to have good relationship with foreign leaders. Uh, that will be actually something quite new, eh? even compared to Obama. You know, it's really striking that Obama was, I guess, the first American president I know who had absolutely no personal relationship with actually no foreign leader, uh, with any foreign leader, and especially with any uh, European uh, European leader. So he knows the importance of of also this this personal uh, personal chemistry. Uh, so it will be again, as I have said, it's an incredible sigh of relief. Uh, in Europe uh, to have Joe Biden as a president. At the same time, there is also worry because uh, we think, considering the political atmospherics in the US, considering the Senate, uh, we are a bit worried that there will be a political blockage. Really, everything will be blocked uh, in in Washington, D.C., the way it was at the end of the Obama administration. And that's that's never very good, especially in in economic and financial in economic and financial terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are still a few Senate races to be decided. Uh, but but thank you so much for your time. And I should say, as someone who has a grandmother in Quebec, mais s'appelle Jean Drou, uh, yeah. I appreciate the the anecdote. Uh, more more importantly, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Ambassador. No, please, it was a real pleasure. Au revoir. Au, au revoir. Merci. All right. Thank you all for listening. Merci, Gérard Arrault. Uh, and as I mentioned at the outset, uh, please do send me suggestions of topics you'd like me to cover or people you'd like me to interview. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if you love this podcast, I would appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. Uh, Reviews help increase the likelihood that other people who are interested in these kinds of global topics find the podcast. It's a great way to grow the podcast audience. The algorithms like reviews. So I appreciate you leaving a review. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.